It's quiz time. Which opera aria is also one of the most popular songs in the history of recorded music, with more than thirty-three thousand covers by groups and solo performers? It's the classic aria "Summertime." On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we learn more about where it comes from—the Gershwin's only opera, "Porgy and Bess." The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Everyone, I'm Dr. Naomi Baratera, and before we dive into our episode for today, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about an exciting travel opportunity. From September 30th through October 9th, 2020, I will be traveling with fellow opera lovers on a cruise through Italy, Croatia, and Greece. Throughout the voyage, we'll visit amazing historical sites, including La Fenice, the Riace Bronzes, and the UNESCO World Heritage Site at Ravello, a city with a rich musical past and present, and so much more. In addition to these exciting offshore excursions, you'll be treated to nightly onboard concerts featuring the works of Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, Verdi, and Puccini, and I'll be providing a series of exclusive guild lectures paired with each performance. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to experience the Mediterranean through the eyes of an opera historian, and I would love for you to join me on this adventure. Cabins are still available. For more information, visit metguild.org/travel or call two one two seven six nine seven zero zero nine. I would say bon voyage, but since we're beginning and ending this cruise in Italy, I'll say buon viaggio. Now into our episode. Despite its initial flop in 1935, Porgy and Bess has gone on to become one of the most enduring and popular operas of the 20th century. In fact, it was the first opera by an American-born composer to be performed at the famous La Scala Opera House in Milan. I'm Stuart Holt, and on today's episode, we have New York University professor and director of archives Ellen Noonan. She is also the author of *The Strange Career of Porgy and Bess: Race, Culture*. And America's most famous opera. Here is her lecture on this quintessential American opera. To start us off, I want to start with an artifact from the original production. This is um, some of you may recognize this artwork. It's by Al Hirschfeld, who quite famously did these caricatures of virtually every Broadway show from the '30s up until uh, his death in the '80s or '90s.、Um, And this was the souvenir program、uh, that was、uh, sold、um, during that first run of Porgy and Bess, and I think it's illustrative because、um, the, the ambivalence and the tension around Porgy and Bess comes from the ways in which it is sort of rooted in its era's 
frankly, racist stereotypes of African Americans in, in popular and even serious culture. And you can see that through the depictions of the company here. This is the character of Mariah, but the rest of this is sort of basically the ensemble. Um, visually looks very much like blackface minstrelsy or like any number of kind of material culture objects you might find from that time period that had these very stereotypical visual depictions of African Americans, the kind of oversized lips. The fact that you can't really make out clear facial features, right, on these figures making up the ensemble. Um, and the kind of, you know, the kind of the super dark skin, the lips in particular, those, those are all strongly within a visual tradition that would have been very familiar to people then um, that comes out of blackface minstrelsy in the 19th century. But in the middle of this picture that is sort of a throwback to the 19th century, um, you see this much different kind of illustration, right? The central couple here, uh, this is Bess, this is Porgy. Uh, Hirschfeld clearly modeled it on the actual actors playing those roles at the time. You can see in the facial features. You see lots of detail. It's a very kind of sensitive and detailed portrait of this love story in the center of that. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think this does kind of embody a lot of the contradictions um, in Porgy and Bess that we're going to talk about tonight. So to tell the full story of Porgy, even though it debuted in 1935, you need to start 10 years earlier in 1925, um, when it was a novel by a man named Dubose Hayward. Uh, was published in 1925. Uh, Hayward was a former Charleston insurance agent who uh, decided to become a fiction writer. Um, and the novel was set in downtown Charleston in an ill-defined early 20th century time period. It never actually says when it is. The first line of the novel says, Porgy lived in the Golden Age, um, which of course opens the question, Golden Age for whom exactly? Um, it focused on the residence of Catfish Row, a dilapidated former mansion near the city's uh, waterfront section. Uh, the book's publisher and the media played up the idea of Hayward's lifelong proximity to African Americans in Charleston as, as evidence that the novel was an authentic, realistic depiction of the subject of black life in Charleston. Um, there was often in the newspaper accounts and the reviews, there was much made of his biography, the fact that he had, he came from an old Charleston family, he had worked as a cotton checker on the docks in Charleston, and so in that way would have come in contact with black workers there. And Hayward himself said that he had based the character of Porgy on a newspaper clipping uh, he had seen from a Charleston newspaper about a disabled beggar who had attempted to shoot his girlfriend um, and not succeeded and ended up off in jail, but it sort of suggested a kind of drama to this man's life that was the springboard for the novel. And the novel was in many ways very sympathetic, a very sympathetic portrait um, of this community that Hayward sort of knew from the outside but not from the inside, and it was certainly sympathetic for 1925. For example, the love story, right, uh, it, it was highly unusual for a, a black romantic story to be treated seriously um, in mainstream culture and thoughtfully. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of plot point in the novel uh, with Bess serving time in a local jail. That's a pretty harrowing description of what the jail was like that suggests, you know, Hayward understood something about the criminal justice system in Charleston at the time. But even as sympathetic as it was, it was still um, rooted in many of the era's stereotypes. This is a, a dust jacket from a book. It's not from the 1925 edition, but uh, I believe it's from around 1927. Um, the text down there at the bottom reads, 
love and life are chaotic in this beautiful and deeply moving novel of the Southern Negro. So it's, again, it's taking the subject seriously, but there's no denying that that, that illustration suggests a kind of menace, a kind of uh, otherworldliness. Um, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's the figure of crown in the foreground, not porgy, uh, which is, is, becomes a theme you'll see in some of the other uh, illustrations. Um, and what I think is most important to understand about the novel is, and it remains true of the opera as well, is that Hayward presented Catfish Row as a kind of sealed off world. These characters have no aspirations, very little contact with the white world. Um, the novel romanticizes its, its characters as pre-modern figures making no claims on white society. Um, and this view of black life was sympathetic but narrow. Um, what he includes and excludes reinforces a very powerful and durable narrative in American life about white people, um, white people having expertise, particularly Southern whites, about race relations and about African Americans being basically contented um, with, their, with their lot. So the novel was successful. Hayward was married to a playwright named Dorothy Hayward, and she and he together collaborated to write a stage version um, of, the, of the work, also called Porgy. It was produced in 1927 in New York by the Theater Guild, which was a, then a nonprofit theater uh, located down in Greenwich Village, but it very quickly transfers to Broadway. It's very successful. And one of the things that's most notable about it, it is the first Broadway production uh, of any note to have an all-black cast, that, it, that is, of a drama. So circa 1927 in New York City on Broadway, there were black cast musical reviews, and there were plays that might have one or two black characters in them, but there had never been a serious dramatic work with an entirely black cast, um, which made this very significant. Um, it was a big critical success. It was very popular. It transfers from the Guild Theater downtown to Broadway. It tours several major cities in the US. It spends two months in London. So it's a, it's a pretty uh, successful on many fronts. I think it's worth noting there are some changes in the story that Hayward makes, the Haywards make, in transforming it from a novel to a play. One is that the character of sport and life um, is pretty marginal in the novel, but then becomes much more prominent in the play. Uh, the, what I was describing about best spending time in jail, that occurs, any characters who spend time in jail, that occurs offstage in the play. It's not, it's not uh, shown. Um, and the Haywards change the ending. So uh, for those, and we'll go, I'll go through the plot of Porgy and Bess, but for those of you who are familiar, it very famously ends with Porgy leaving for New York and Bess leaving for New York, Porgy going to follow her. Um, in the novel, she leaves for Savannah. Uh, she has followed a group of stevedores. Uh, she decides to leave Catfish Row, and she follows uh, a group of men who are going to Savannah to find work. Um, and it's worth noting, in the novel, it is crystal clear that Bess is a prostitute. In the dramatized versions, eh, I guess you can sort of figure that out. It's, no, it's not quite as clear. Um, and, uh, and I think those are all, I think, significant changes. And so while it's the novel that George Gershwin read and was inspired to you know, try his hand writing opera, uh, it's the play that really the libretto ends up being based on those changes. Um, so now we can move to 1935 and an opera 
uh, of this very opera version of this very successful play. The opera got a lot of attention, one, because the play had been very successful, and two, because Gershwin was a pretty big celebrity at this point. He was a very successful popular music composer, Broadway composer. He was kind of a man about town. Like, he's always popping up in the gossip columns of, and, like, that kind of coverage in the newspapers. He's all go, always going out to parties. He's a high-profile guy, and so the combination of this hit play and Gershwin attached to it, the, the run-up to the opera gets an enormous amount of attention. Um, and Gershwin was very self-consciously trying to write the first authentically American opera that would be both a musical and a commercial success. He had very democratic aspirations in that way, and he used the descri he described his aspiration as wanting to write something that was, quote, for the many rather than the cultured few. Um, and he insisted that the opera be performed by African-American singers, not white singers in blackface. And that's a really pivotal decision. I would argue it's one that ensures that this opera did persist through the 20th century, through times when its subject matter and authorship might have um, seemed less attractive to do. Um, and, and in terms of the kind of way it was understood at the time, just as the black cast of the play was a novelty, this too was a novelty. Um, there are only four white characters in the opera, none of them sing. Um, so you'll see two detectives, a coroner, and a lawyer, and that's it. And they appear very briefly. So uh, in terms of the reception of it in 1935, white critics generally liked the show very much. Although it only ran for 127 performances, it was very expensive. There's a big orchestra, a big cast. Um, and the guild was losing money. So even though it was high profile and reasonably popular, it wasn't, it was, they were losing money on it. In African-American publications, black critics were absolutely thrilled at the opportunities that black, professionally trained black singers were finally getting because this was an era in which institutions like the Met and other professional opera companies did not use black singers. If they needed to represent people of other races, they put white singers in blackface. Um, and so this was a gigantic milestone and opportunity for these um, extremely talented and, and trained and sort of ready to go singers. But many black critics had reservations and concerns about the piece's depiction of its black characters and these kind of stereotypes um, that persist in even a sympathetic portrayal. Um, and there was some concern, I think, among black critics that white critics were showering praise on Gershwin for having achieved authentic black sound, right? Like a lot of it was like, wow, Gershwin's really done it. He, he made this music that sounds just like black music. Black critics uh, were not really um, jumping on that bandwagon. There was a lot of debate at the time over whether Porgy was an opera or a piece of musical theater. Gershwin's background, of course, was in musical theater. His brother Ira collaborated on some of the songs. Um, to the extent that many newspapers sent both their theater critic and their music critic to opening night, and they ran the reviews side by side. So this is the New York Times did that, but the New York Times was not alone um, in doing that. So um, I now want to shift gears a little bit into a bit of a, a synopsis of the plot and talking a little bit about some, um, some of the musical kind of highlights in the piece. Uh, I will start with this illustration from a sheet music cover um, to give you a sense of how the setting and the plot and the major characters. Um, so, as I said, it was based in Charleston, uh, which the artist here has given us a, a palm tree. South Carolina is known as the Palmetto State. Um, this is our catfish row in the background here. 
We've got a fishing boat. Uh, one of the plot points is about fishermen going out in a storm. Um, you might guess that this is Porgy and Bess. You would be incorrect in that guess. Even though Porgy is in the title, he is kind of a minor figure in the background here. This is Porgy back here. Uh, as I mentioned, he's disabled, he can't walk, he gets around by a goat that pulls a cart around. Um, this is Bess and Sport and Life. Um, so uh, it is interesting the ways in which sort of it's Porgy and Bess it is in that opera tradition of a kind of love story and a, and a kind of doomed romance in the, in the title, but uh, still somehow Porgy doesn't quite get top billing in the, in the visual art. And the other main character missing from here is Crown. So Crown is a stevedore, which would have been uh, one of the, that's the name for the men who unloaded the, do the boats in, uh, from big cotton bales off the boats in Charleston. Um, so they were big, strong guys. Crown is... Bess's uh, boyfriend and the villain of the piece. Um, so now that we've seen who we have, we're introduced to Catfish Row. This is Catfish Row. This is the set from the 1935 production. Um, we are introduced to Catfish Row with probably the most, one of the most famous arias in opera history, but most people don't think of it as an aria, and that is the song Summertime. Summertime is undoubtedly one of the most covered songs in the English language. Uh, any, any number of jazz musicians, pop artists, singers have done a version of Summertime. There's a Janis Joplin version of Summertime. There's a Miles Davis version of Summertime. There are endless numbers of Summertime uh, covers. I will attest when I was working on the dissertation that became this book and was carrying around all the anxiety that graduate students carry around. I couldn't go on the subway without hearing a subway musician playing Summertime and making me feel guilty that I wasn't working. So it is, it is incredibly, that song itself has kind of traveled so far. I'm sure most people who know that song 
don't don't know that it comes from an opera, or many don't know that it comes from an opera. And I think that's you know something about the music of this. It, you know that confusion about is it a piece of musical theater or is it an opera is founded in these kinds of songs that um, have this kind of um, accessibility and resonance even to people who are not uh, fans of opera or necessarily knowledgeable of opera. So I'm going to go through the plot and hit the major plot points just to preview them for you tonight. But And to do that, I gathered a few archival photos of, of other productions. Um, as I said, there have been lots and lots of productions. Uh, you know, this was 1935, the first revivals in 1942. Uh, it doesn't take long to start reviving it, and it keeps getting revived a lot. So um, I will, where I could find photos to illustrate some of what uh, these plot points, I, I will be running through them. So we start with this sort of bucolic, beautiful summertime introduction to Catfish Row. As night falls, uh, a dice game, craps game begins. Um, and there uh, is a dispute, and... Um, that turns into a fight, and Crown kills one of the residents of Catfish Row named Robbins. When this happens, uh, everybody scatters uh, into their own rooms, into their own apartments. Bess is left, Crown disappears. Bess is left to try to find shelter, and nobody wants to let her in. She's going around banging on all the doors. Nobody wants to let her in. Porgy lets her in. Um, the next morning, white detectives arrive to investigate the murder of Robbins. No one will say anything to them. And, and in this, I think Hayward accurately captures something true about racial power relations in Charleston at the time. Um, and the detectives decide to take an old man named Peter with them uh, as a kind of coercive, we're going to take you with us and maybe you can identify the body and you, maybe you'll answer some questions. Maybe once you know, we've put you in jail, you'll, have, you'll be willing to talk to us. Um, the next scene is the residents of Catfish Row holding a funeral for Robbins. And they're trying to raise money so that he can be have a proper burial, that they can pay the undertaker. Because if they can't do that, uh, he will be, his body will be donated to the city's medical school for the medical students to use as a cadaver. And the people in Catfish Row really, really don't want that to happen. So you'll notice there's, um, there's a saucer, right, on... You can see that they're collecting money. So it's called a saucer burial, which was um, a tradition. And, you know, this is a long tradition in black communities, in immigrant communities of kind of mutual aid for purposes of burial, right? These are poor communities that don't have any extra, but there is a coming together when it's time for someone to be buried or for a widow to be taken care of. Um, so I want to play just to have a little bit of another aria, uh, Serena's Lament. Um, at this funeral.
two begins a month later. The residents of Catfish Row are preparing for a picnic on nearby Kittawa Island. It's a Sunday. Um, Charleston uh, is, is a peninsula uh, that sticks, has a river on either side, and there are um, islands right uh, off the shore. Uh, and so the, all, everybody from Catfish Row is going to be getting on a boat and going uh, to take a, a picnic. And so they're all dressed up in their Sunday best. Um, Sport, there's a scene between Sport and Life and Bess where he tempts her with what the, is called in the opera Happy Dust, which is cocaine. Sport and Life is a drug dealer. Uh, Bess is struggling with addiction. Um, and she, she is able to resist him in ways she hasn't in the past because she says, I'm with Porgy now. Um, I'm, I'm having a different life. I'm staying here. I'm not, I'm not doing that uh, anymore. And um, as I mentioned Earlier, I mean, the significance of the Porgy and Bess love story is it is really powerful in, in sort of all most other pop culture and depictions of African-Americans. There is no space for uh, romantic, you know, serious adult romantic love and relationships. Right. It's uh, the, the tradition of black people being buff stupid and buffoonish or violent or any number of things, but stably and happily coupled is not something that you really see um, in pop culture in the 20s and 30s. And so this is incredibly powerful um, and an important part of this work. So we're going to play a little bit now of their love duet. Bessie is my woman now.
Uh, it turns out that Crown has been hiding out from the law on Kittawa Island. Bess gets separated from the rest of the group and encounters Crown in an isolated part of the woods there. Um, they argue he would like her to come back to him. He, she does not want to do that. And he sexually assaults her. Um, and, and she ends up missing the boat that the rest of the people are taking back to Charleston. So she does not return um, with them. She does come back a week later. She makes her way back to Catfish Row. She makes her way back to Catfish Row. She's delirious. She's babbling. She's sick. Porgy doesn't know what happened to her. He asks uh, Clara uh, to uh, try to pray for her and, and, uh, and do some kind of voodoo to help her get better. Um, and there's a, a little bit of music called where they sing to Dr. Jesus. Um, but this is a, you know, this is another example of it is both an actual sort of cultural practice among African Americans in South Carolina at that time, but also sort of seen as, you know, presenting African Americans as superstitious in a way that some, you know, black critics were not entirely comfortable with. Um, there is warning that there is a hurricane coming. Uh, Jake and some of the other fishermen set out anyway to go, uh, go fishing, even though there's an impending storm. The hurricane does indeed hit. Um, and the reason uh, one can surmise that the golden age that this novel is set in is the early 20th century is there was a major hurricane hit Charleston in 1906. Um, and so presumably this is what uh, Hayward's drawing on. The residents of Catfish Row gather uh, in Serena's room, again, to uh, wait out the storm together. Crown bursts in while they are all there together and, uh, and, and taunts them a little bit, for, and particularly Porgy, for being a coward, that he had been out in the storm, uh, and here they were huddled inside. Clara, who is Jake's wife, is distraught, and she goes rushing out into the storm to try to find her husband. Um, she leaves her baby with Bess, and then Crown and some of the other men go after her to try to make sure she's okay to see what happened um, to the fishermen. That is the end of Act Two. Act Three uh, opens with Catfish Row mourning Clara and Jake and the others who died in this massive hurricane. And uh, again, our snake in the Garden of Eden, Sport and Life, uh, hints that perhaps Crown survived the hurricane. They're, everyone's sort of assuming Crown died, but Sport and Life suggests that maybe um, he is not dead. And after nightfall, Sport and Life, it turns out, is right. Crown comes back to Catfish Row to try to take Bess with him. Porgy confronts him and kills him. And so the next day, the white detectives arrive again to investigate a murder. And again, nobody will say anything to them, even though, and, and I, you know, it, it is, again, this really interesting commentary. Like, nobody, nobody really likes Crown. <laughs> and, you know, and he was a murderer before, but still, in both of these cases, they will not say anything to white law enforcement, certainly not on Porgy. Um, again, they want to bring someone back with them to identify the body. They choose Porgy. And Sport and Life pulls Porgy aside and says, well, you know what happens when a murderer looks on the eyes of the corpse of someone they've murdered? The corpse's eyes will start to bleed. And Porgy believes him. And Porgy does not want to go. He resists. The officers basically forcibly take him 
to go identify the body. And at this point, these detectives don't think Porgy, Por, Porgy can't walk. Nobody is suspecting Porgy of having killed Graham, or the detectives aren't anyway. But, but Porgy is terrified to go. He ends up having to go anyway. Uh, after he leaves, um, Sport and Life convinces Beth that Porgy will not be coming back. He'll get arrested, he'll give himself away. That's it, Porgy's not coming back, her man's not coming back. She is also distraught. She agrees to go with him to New York. He, and he, um, I'm gonna play now uh, a song that I chose because it is so, such the kind of classic Broadway song that is sitting in the middle, uh, oops, sorry, got ahead of myself, uh, sitting in the middle of this opera. Uh, there's a boat that's leaving soon for New York. This is Sport and Life convincing Bess to go with him. There's a boat that's leaving soon for New York. returns to Catfish Row, uh, having survived his experience, not given himself away, gets out of jail, and is uh, upset to discover that Bess has gone. Um, and the opera ends with Porgy deciding to set out and follow her to New York, even though he is, frankly, not all that clear on where New York is, um, that he's going to set out in his goat cart and go to New York, and he sings, Oh, Lord, I'm on my way. And that's the last number of the opera. So I want to turn back now to uh, the kind of go a little deeper into that, these larger questions about race and culture during the 1930s to help us understand Porgy and Bess, how it was created and received, why it was um, 
has inspired some degree of ambivalence and even controversy in different time periods. So to do that, I think it's useful to look at uh, Dubose Hayward's views on racial difference and what I would describe as an attitude of white paternalism. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, Catfish Row, Hayward's Catfish Row, is a world largely closed off from white society. This has the effect of naturalizing segregation, and it spares white audiences from having to think too directly about the impact of racism on these characters. Um, and uh, Hayward's identity and Hayward's belief systems really are so central to this, partly because um, the Theater Guild really built on Hayward's reputation as this successful novelist um, and framed the 1927 play production as this kind of authentic depiction of black Southern life. I mean, virtually a documentary. So I want to read a little bit here from this uh, ad from the 1927 production. It says, um, if you are interested in an authentic picture of Southern life, a richly mounted, colorful pageant uh, of life among the Charleston Negroes. So again, this is, uh, it's sort of claiming realism, but you know, pageantry doesn't necessarily say realism. A playful of the picturesque, humorous, and tragic elements of this life. Um, again, the sort of minstrel tradition and the would, would emphasize the picturesque and the humorous, the tragic, right? Like there's not a lot of space in, in the culture for uh, black characters to just have anything resembling normal uh, lives. Um, an exciting story played against the, a background of simple Negro melodies. So one of the distinctive and selling points of this show is that they used uh, several spirituals in the staging of it. Um, and this was uh, something they were playing up. Here's, here's the kicker. Colored life free from any hint of race problems or antipathies. Right? This is saying this will not distress you, white audiences, if you come to this. And that's who most of the audience for this would have been. Um, and it was, I think, a very direct reference to the fact that in 1924, there was a Eugene O'Neill play on Broadway called All God's Chillin' Got Wings that featured an interracial relationship at the center of it. And it was so controversial that some people tried to get the city to close it down. Um, and so I think right here they're saying, this is not Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> this is something different. This is something um, a little safer. Um, unhackneyed spirituals sung as you have heard them in the South without the usual affectations of Northern rendering. The appearance of a real orphanage band from the Jenkins Orphanage led by a tiny mite who is already a master of jazz rhythm. rhythm. So really doubling down on the Charleston aspect on the kind of black music. Um, aspect that become important for marketing the opera itself just a few years later. And when you think about it, that still happens now, right? If you make a, a movie out of something that was first a play or a novel, um, you know, there's already a kind of cultural consciousness about what this thing is, that when it's being marketed to new audiences, it's building very much on that. And because it was just, um, just a few years, uh, you know, that's very much the case. Um, for the opera as well. And these kind of messages are repeated over and over again, not just in posters, in ads, in program notes, in the ways that critics write about the show. And so I think it's important to remember that people would have gotten a sense of what Porgy and Porgy and Bess were about, even if they never went to it, right? I don't know how many of you have been to Hamilton. I bet even if you haven't been to it, you have some sense of what it's about and what's important about it and what kind of cultural message it carries. That's how like all of these things that emerge around a piece of performing arts sort of do some work helping people understand them. 
Um, so, you know, along the point of the kind of Charleston authenticity of it all, for the 1935 production, the Guild kind of went back to the same playbook. They sent the director and the scenic designer to Charleston to kind of do research, and then you see newspaper articles about that um, to kind of, um, you know, emphasize that. And I want to play one last clip um, of a kind of particular musical thing that Gershwin, who also took a trip to Charleston, uh, incorporated into the score, which were the very um, distinctive and unique to Charleston cries of black street peddlers. Um, so we're going to hear the honey man here. That is a little piece of, you know, the Charleston uh, identity of this piece being represented in the music, not just in the way it's marketed. So clearly there's a strong kind of narrative around this show that Hayward has this sort of insight into black Southern life and a real authority to present it. I want to look a little bit at, um, I spent some time looking at his nonfiction writings to get a sense of Hayward's worldview around these questions of race and to illustrate what I described earlier as his white racial paternalism. And so there's a essay he published in 1923 in a Southern literary magazine called And Once Again the Negro. Um, and in it, he used anecdotes from his own biography and his own experiences and observations of African-Americans in Charleston to make an argument that certain racial stereotypes that are usually seen to use to signal black inferiority might actually be reframed or rethought to signal that um, African-Americans had uh, achieved some kind of um, more natural, better state of being than uh, white people. And so he would talk, he talked, gave examples of stevedores uh, who would only work when they needed to. They would only work just enough to uh, have to, to get by. Um, kind of he would tell these what he considered humorous stories of kind of unconventional sexual morals and couples staying together and breaking up and, you know, not necessarily respecting a kind of uh, you know, conventional idea of marriage. Um, and he, he, Hayward suggested that these traits would be an, were an appealing alternative to white middle-class norms. And so, again, this was, this was progressive for 1923 to sort of put that out there, right? These Take these stereotypes and turn them on their head. But his larger point in recounting these stories was to, in some way, mourn that, that, that these um, were going to go away. Um, and I'll quote from this a little... Uh, extensively. He said, he wrote, quote, the reformer will have them in the fullness of time. They will surely be cleaned, married, conventionalized. 
They will be taken from the fields and given to machines. Their instinctive feeling for the way that leads to happiness will be supplanted by a stifling moral straitjacket. And he concluded, uh, he had written about a particular dock worker, I cannot see him as a joke. Most certainly, I cannot contort him into a menace. I can only be profoundly sorry for him. He is about to be saved. And so he is, you know, this is, he's one of a long line of white Southerners saying, I know what's best for the black people in my midst and in my society. Um, and he's writing these words in 1923 at a very specific moment in U.S. history um, when African-Americans are voting with their feet about how they feel about white paternalism and white people knowing what is best for them. Um, between 1910 and 1930, more than a million African-Americans moved out of the South to cities in the North, Midwest, and West. Um, they sought economic opportunity, freedom from racial violence, safety, freedom from segregation. Um, and thanks to the Great Migration in 1927, the year that Porgy debuts on Broadway, for the first time in more than 100 years, whites outnumbered blacks in South Carolina. So there is a, a, as Hayward is kind of writing these and expressing these views both in nonfiction and in his fictional work, um, a profound change is undergoing. And I, I would argue that you can see, that's why Sport and Life becomes just as much of a villain of the piece as Crown does, right? Sport and Life represents the North, represents what is going to be lost um, in this great migration. So, I will turn now and finally to how um, black reviewers and commentators have uh, understood and commented on Porgy and Bess. Um, because even if Hayward sees these stereotypes as positive, it is just undeniable that the rest of the culture does not. And the way that this work sort of situa is situated in the rest of the culture is in that more negative way. Uh, I won't dwell on this, but this is just one of many, many examples. Sam and Henry was the forerunner to Amos and Andy. Um, a radio show with two white radio performers pretending to be black. Um, so it was like a kind of audio blackface in the 20s. It was hugely popular in the 20s and 30s with the dawn of radio. You know, minstrelsy just sort of makes the jump into this new medium. Um, and that's just, it's, it's, you just can't escape that context for how people are going to understand Porgy and Best. Black commentators are painfully aware of this. So this is a quote from the New York Amsterdam News, which is a, a, an African-American newspaper that is still in publication today here in New York. The traditional stereotype of what the Negro is like has dogged him into the theater, and the theater has had a profound effect in perpetuating this stereotype. If the average white person could divorce all Negroes from an incident in the theater, we would happily welcome a Porgy and Bess show. But unfortunately, the masses will witness such a production with such remarks as, Negroes are so quaint. Negroes are so superstitious, and carry these forms out of the theater and into their thinking about the Negro. The Negro will and does meet it in his everyday contact with whites. And this is the most, like, you get a version of this in most of the reviews in black newspapers about Porgy and Bess. Um, this is the most kind of crystallized and distilled. Um, you know, African Americans understood the powerful roles that performers had in advancing the civil rights struggles. It was a time when these were educated black professionals routinely among white people, and that was pretty rare. And so there was a lot riding on high culture and performing arts culture like this, and they, and they understood that. Um, 
And, you know, the other context that's important to remember, Porgy and, Porgy and Porgy and Bess may have cracked the door open for black performers on Broadway. It didn't really do much for black composers and black writers, right? This was still a piece written by white authors that was giving them this opportunity. And so the absence of opportunities to be telling their own stories really rankled and made it hard for African-Americans to embrace this show unreservedly, as much as they did embrace the accomplishments much of the artistry about it, much of what was sort of racially progressive about it. Um, so I want to fast forward in my last few minutes here. There are, as I suggested, many revivals starting in 1942, but one of the most interesting and significant ones comes in the 1950s. So from 1952 to 1956, there is a high-profile production of Porgy and Bess that tours the United States and then the world. Uh, it is very much constructed as a piece of musical theater, which has only added to the kind of confusion over the years about is this an opera or is it not? This, this one was definitely a piece of musical theater. Um, it starred William Warfield as Porgy, Cab Calloway as Sport and Life, and a very young Leontine Price, who had just graduated from Juilliard, as Bess. Um, and you can see poor Porgy doesn't make the poster here either, right? That's, again, it's Sport and Life and Bess. Um, and you get a very, um, you know, it's a very kind of high-gloss image there. Uh, of, of the show. So it toured the United States. It was hugely successful. It was chosen by the United States State Department to perform overseas as part of what was then a, a somewhat new cultural propaganda program. It was a, a weapon in the Cold War arsenal uh, that up, had up until this point been things like the Boston Symphony Orchestra or the Martha Graham Dance Company um, to just basically say, uh, you know, capitalism isn't just about money. We have art, too. Uh, that was a favorite kind of Soviet criticism of American capitalism of like, where, where are your symphonies? Where are your great ballets? Where are your operas? We have all of that stuff. You don't because you're too busy making money. But with Porgy and Bess, there was another propaganda message, and that was to counter the Soviet critique of American democracy that you may call yourself a democracy, but look at the way you treat your black people. You're not letting them vote. You're not giving them equal opportunity, right? So this was a part of the Cold War discourse that this show was designed to counter. And so what the State Department did was it had a kind of two-pronged um, propaganda message. One was that the content of Porgy and Bess, the substance of the show, reflected America's racial past. But the performers, the talented, educated, really uh, fantastic performers, they represented the American you know, current situation in race relations. They were well-educated. They had all these opportunities. They were at the top of their game. And so um, there was as much publicity about what the cast was doing offstage and taking tours. So this is an article from Life magazine. Um, the show went to Moscow, and it went to Warsaw, and it went to Yugoslavia, which was really unheard of at that time. That was not a time when people traveled back and forth between the West and those countries behind the Iron Curtain. So there was an enormous amount of publicity about this. Um, and it was very much these actors, these performers, carrying the weight of this propaganda message of American race relations. Um, you can imagine uh, that the, the tensions that had always been around Porgy and Bess starting in the 30s about, wait a minute, the content of this we're not sure about, the opportunities you're giving to black performers, maybe that outweighs it. That only gets, that grows and grows. And by the 50s, there are many black commentators who are outraged that this is, this is what's representing the United States. This is the opportunity you're giving black performers. And so the whole calculus, the 
you know, cost-benefit calculus, you might call it, flips, right? Like, the visibility for the performers isn't enough to justify what many black commentators feel is just unacceptable kind of material anymore, and certainly not to be, you know, trumpeted as this sort of emblematic American piece of culture. Um, and so I want to close on the, uh, the, the commentator who, again, sort of summed this up most astutely, most cogently, and that is, of course, James Baldwin. He, in this case, this is his review. There's a Hollywood movie version of Porgy and Bess that comes out in 1959. Some of you may have seen it. Film Society of Lincoln Center just showed it last month. It's not seen very often uh, because the Gershwin estate didn't like it very much. Uh, supposedly, Ira Gershwin didn't like it very much, and once their agreement with MGM was up, that was that. It has not been kind of distributed via DVD and streaming and all the other ways that we see old movies. But anyway, so this is James Baldwin's uh, review of the film. What has always been missing from George Gershwin's opera is what the situation of Porgy and Bess says about the white world. It is because of this omission that Americans are so proud of the opera. It assuages their guilt about Negroes and it attacks none of their fantasies. Um, and so I think... Um, this kind of criticism and controversy in the 50s did not si signal an end to the productions of Porgy and Bess. Here we are. Um, but I think it's an important reminder that ideas about racial identity and cultural representation and access to cultural marketplaces should always, always be something we think about with the pieces of culture that we love and we consume. Um, because those questions have, um, have never entirely gone away and maybe Porgy and Bess isn't the locus for them anymore in the way it was in the 50s and the 30s. There's other pieces of art that I think raise some of these questions. Um, and I think we can still love Porgy and Bess, but still understand uh, where it comes from. Isn't it interesting that here's this piece of culture written by white authors about African Americans from the 20s, and, we, and people are still doing it. I can't think of anything else where you could describe it in that way, right? Many, many things were written about black characters by white authors in the 20s that are not, are not being done at the mat, are not at the kind of top of the cultural heap the way Porgy and Bess has managed to stay. And so that was the question I set out to answer is, so why do we still have Porgy and Bess? And obviously one simple answer is the music is glorious, the story is kind of engaging and complex and interesting, these characters, um, but it's, it, 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 I found it to be this really interesting barometer of a lot of stuff that happens politically and culturally around race over a period of decades. Um, so to, to both enjoy it as a piece of art, but just help understand what it can tell us about American history. Many thanks to Ellen Noonan for guiding us through the music and history of Porgy and Bess. James Robinson's acclaimed production of Porgy and Bess is currently on stage at the Met through February 1st and can be seen in cinemas worldwide on February 1st, 2020, live in HD. For more information, visit metopera.org. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.